Okay, today's passage is from Acts 8, 1 through 26. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had been baptized in the name of the whole, of, of Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit had been given to them through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you had said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Nate. Good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it is a delight to be with you this morning. Um, one of my favorite things about um, March Madness is that you never know what's going to happen. There is this uh, consistent sense of inconsistency, this unpredictable unpredictability, which leaves you with Loyola Chicago that none of us had in our final four in the final four. Um, that's a witness to the fact that even when all odds are against you, things can go okay, can be surprising. Now, that may be devastating to you, depending on how your bracket turned out, uh, that it was unexpected for sure. But uh, one of the things that we're seeing in the book of Acts that's way more interesting than March Madness 
is that as, we, as we've been looking at the birth of this church, this um, struggling movement that against a greater odds for sure than Loyola Chicago, a small band of followers of Jesus, empowered by this spirit of God, have dramatically grown. So much so that they're, they're saturating Jerusalem with, with their teaching and with, with these miracles and, and everybody knows the way. Everybody knows those are the Christians. In the midst of that, we've started to see as they've saturated, as they've taken up more and more space, a growing amount of an escalation of opposition. And today, there's a tipping point. Today, things change, and, and the way that the church is going to live out and execute its mission from here on out is going to be different in the world. So this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at great trials that lead to great joy because of someone greater. Great trials that lead to great joy because there is someone greater. Well, great trials... It is an undeniable, an undeniable reality um, in the scriptures and certainly in the witness of the church through all of its history that God does and will allow the church to suffer, that he'll allow the church and his people to be persecuted, to be taken advantage of, to be mistreated, imprisoned, and yes, even often killed, that he will allow sickness and loss and pain and rejection for his sons and for his daughters to this very day. We see in verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. But Saul was ravaging the church and, and entering house after house, he, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is a really sobering picture Luke it doesn't make any comments about it. He doesn't make any commentary about what that looked like or the implications for the church. He just simply states what happened. And then the effects of what happened. That they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, having studied the book of Acts, you, you, you think, okay, God was doing something. You, you look ahead. But, but before we look ahead, we have to take one step back and realize that oftentimes we might romanticize the magnitude of what this cost the early church. We might romanticize persecution even, which is something that those of us who've never experienced persecution have the luxury of doing. We need to realize that these were real people with real suffering who experienced tangible loss, uncertainty, and pain. And most of the time, like for us, when that uncertainty, that pain, that loss showed up, they had no idea of what it was for. No idea what was afoot. They had no idea that God's hand was on the move, that he had plans, purposes that he was going to execute. They had no idea of that. All they could see is that family members were being taken to prison, that mom and dad were gone. And just like us, they didn't know what was happening. So what do we do when great trials come to us or come to people in our community as they have in our present tense? For many people in our community. Well, there's two things that shows up that show up in the passage. And first we see in verse two that when great trials come, we mourn. Verse two says, Devout men buried Stephen, who had just been martyred, and they made great lamentation over him. The word great shows up a whole bunch of times in this passage, is one of the reasons why. 
There'd be great lamentation over him. When we allow, and we must allow, sorrow and loss to come home. When all of our unmet desires are very real, when our losses are deeply felt, they must be fully felt. Not, not in generalities, but tangibly and, and deeply and particularly specifically. We have a, we can have a really good friend of ours who said this to us many times. She says, remember that we do not mourn in generalities. We grieve in the specifics. We do not mourn in generalities. We grieve in the specifics. We grieve in the particulars of what won't be, of what can't be anymore. And all the while, as we choose to enter, as we choose to mourn for real, we seek to look with our pain at God for comfort. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn, because if you mourn, you will be comforted. But we don't just mourn, we, we mourn together. It's a group of men that, that gather together, and even though it was soon to be against the law to mourn for or, or to grieve for someone who was condemned to death, it was against the law, they, they gathered together, they made loud lamentations. They did it together. It's as though they're, it's like a precursor to what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 12 when he says, if one member suffers, all suffer. And if one member is honored, we'll all rejoice together. So we mourn with those who mourn. And typically, we're just really bad at this. We're uncomfortable with, with deep sorrow. We're not, we're not sure what to do with, with massive pain in people. But to mourn with those who mourn means to be comfortable being with when there is loss. Without seeking necessarily to have the answers without trying to make someone feel better or even just to help them out of it, but to enter into each other's pain, to sit with one another and to ask more than to tell. We love one another through great lamentations, through lamenting with one another. But we, we don't just mourn, we mourn and we persevere. And I think this is where we usually end up in one side or the other. We don't we either mourn and, and we stay in the mourning and, and sorrow and difficulty and trial, or we just persevere. Forget mourning. I got to get things done. I got to move forward. And, and the passage here is pointing to the fact that two things happen. There's tangible mourning. Real loss has occurred. And now there's also real perseverance. Verse 4 says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were strengthened in the word to express the word. I just kept hearing the words of Jesus from the upper room discourse when he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let your heart, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or further, he says, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, oh, you're going to have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Loved ones, when there's great trials, God is always up to something. He's always up to something. And, and that's something that he's always up to is always for his glory and always for our good. Now, if you're sitting here and 
and you have no trials or it's been a while, your heart's going, amen, Pat. Mm-hmm. You can even say preach it, brother. That works too. But if you have sorrow, if you're in real trial, the declaration that God is always up to something is really, really hard to swallow, really challenging to believe that, that it's for his glory and our good, or well, maybe his glory, but certainly not our good. But over and over in the scriptures, God says, I'm doing something. It was true with Abraham and, Isaac, Abraham and Sarah in, in their barren womb. It was true for Joseph as he, as he sat, sat in a prison for years and years. God was up to something. It was true for Moses in the desert. It was true for the children of Israel who were just languishing, waiting for redemption. God was up to something. It was true for Ruth and Naomi as they, they were widowed. It was true for David as he's running from Saul. It was true for the children of Israel in exile. And it was never more true than when Jesus was arrested and hung on a cross. God was up to something. He was about to change everything. So God is up to something in your sorrow, in your pain, in your loss, in your unmet desires. And somehow, in, in ways that I'm not arrogant enough to assume that I understand or know, nor should anyone else be, he is working for his good, for his glory, and for your good. God wastes nothing. He weaves everything. And what we get in, the, in the chapter 8 of, of Acts is we get this moment where, where he shows us most of the time we don't get to see it. And I can guarantee you the people that are sitting in prison in this moment, they're not getting to see it. But, but we get to see that, that God was doing something. He was up to something. And the thing that he was up to was joy. He had in mind great joy. These great trials led to great joy. We see that persecution breaks out. And the, the 12 apostles are the only ones, it says that, in a sense, stay in Jerusalem. Everyone else gets scattered. Philip goes to Samaria. We see in verse 4 that we just read, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, this is a major change in, in how the church had been operating, well, ever. Everyone preached the word. Now, the word preached is not what you think of, like preparing a sermon and talking in front of people or in some kind of city plaza. It's not like that. The word is actually just the, it's the word for evangelize. It just means speaking the true things about Jesus, the reality of, of redemption. But it's every single Christian, every single one, what had been Every Christian was now moving from a, primarily a, um, a consuming of the truth, a, a ministry consumer to being a ministry proclaimer, having taken the truth and now begun to live it out and taking it all over every place and at all times. God used the persecution of the church to send the entire community on mission to be proclaimers so that everyone would be on mission. And this mission is, it's, it's organic. It's individuals making decisions about how they're going to follow what God might lead them into. 
the apostles don't go, they, they don't have a, a plan laid out. They don't have a, a, a large-scale strategy that we see anywhere here. They just, they got scattered. People grabbed their things in the middle of the night and ran. And as they ran, grieving and mourning, they shared everywhere they went. It was a movement of God through his people. And therefore, it was dynamic. It was, it was spontaneous. It, it, was, it was particular to the manifestation of how God was going to work through individuals on mission where they were being scattered. And, and that's honestly one of the ways and one of the reasons why as a church, we, we think about mission on being on mission at Roswell as life on mission, as as not so much the manifestation of how do we come up with two to three things to invite all of you guys to do with us, but, but more significantly, the fact that we are gathered to be sent. We are, we are a scattered people. And how does God have the particular manifestation of his grace in you to be given away to others? What are your gifts and passions? And, and how do we then, as the church, gather to, to encourage, to, to equip to support, to stir up the gifts and and passions, telling each other the great stories of both celebration and of encouragement. God is stirring things up in you. Right before church, I got to talk to someone who who has new new arenas that that she's stepping into, that that she's not sure how it's going to go. It it, it may fall. She doesn't want to talk about it too much because she's not sure it's going to go well. But it's a, it's a true manifestation of what's always been true about her. When, when I heard about it from her husband, I was like, I'm not surprised at all. This fits exactly what I've always known to be true. So, of course, she is. Of course, she's going to pursue this. Of course, she's going to put herself at risk. It, it's just the overflow of what's true about her. Life on mission is, is something that places us amidst God, where God has sent us, and sometimes that's in groups, and sometimes that's as families, and oftentimes it's just as individuals. See, our desire is not to build an organization, but to spur on a movement, to gather and to celebrate and to encourage one another in the ways that God has scattering you out into the world. And in that way, we resemble Acts chapter 8 and beyond. As mission is organic and, and everyone is sent and, and everyone's involved, and yet we see something peculiar happening. In verse 14, the apostles go down to Samaria, geographically north, but everything's down from Jerusalem. So they, they go down, and one of the reasons they're going is that these Samaritan believers have believed, been baptized, but there's a catch and this is a catch that theologians have been arguing and wrestling with for a long time. So in just a couple minutes, I'll just clear that up for you guys. No, no I'm not going to do that. What we see here is that they had not received the Holy Spirit, which is surprising because outside of this moment and, and Pentecost, this is the only time where the receiving of the Spirit is separate from belief and baptism. They're always together. Always, always, always. They're, they're there in Paul's writings, theologically. This is the only two times, Pentecost, and this moment where they're separated, where there's a, where there's a gap. So even though this is a, a dynamic moment, this is a, this is a movement of God, there is no like, leadership pyramid. You, know? you have to ask him, then you have to ask them, then you get permission from that group. 
it wasn't chaotic or, or aimless. It was, it was intentional and, and clear. It wasn't everyone just aimlessly going about. It was, it was under control. The apostles were the ones who had been entrusted to, to hold the teachings of Jesus, to be the stewards of the doctrine. And they were, in that sense, the confirmation committee, if you will. They were the ones who, when the gospel went out, were, were to come and to make sure that, that those who said they were believing the gospel were really believing the gospel, that it was the real thing, that it wasn't false or, or, or broken. They were there to verify, to, to confirm, and, and to act as guardians of the truth and, to, and the effect of the gospel as it was being scattered. Is this the real thing? It's the real thing. And with the confirmation of the Holy Spirit, they receive confirmation that God has moved into Samaria, that the Holy Spirit has brought converts from Samaria, which to Jews is crazy talk. The boundaries have been broken, and that maybe, just maybe, the very commission that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 is beginning to take place. You'll be my disciples in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria. He meant it. Here it goes, and it's being scattered out of a mess, but it's, it's moving forward. The movement of God is, is undeniable. And so the apostles come, and they, and they confirm that this is indeed This is indeed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these are indeed real believers. These are indeed people who have been redeemed by Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes on there with a laying on of hands, which is just beautiful because Jews don't touch Samaritans. Otherwise, otherwise they're they're ceremonially unclean. And so so we're just breaking barriers in every possible direction here. The Holy Spirit doesn't always come just because people are laying hands on. So, So it was particular. It was intentional. There must have been a buzz in that city. The apostles became the stabilizing, verifying body of the faith as it moved out into the world. And and it was beyond their control, and yet it was being released in truth. It enabled the mission to be both unified under a standard of truth and at the same time to to remain dynamic and and creative, full of new ideas and initiatives. It It was alive. One commentator says, when the Christians were together under powerful and gifted leadership of the apostles, they were more passive. They brought friends to hear preaching, and then scat- but when scattered, they gathered up the courage to share and spread to others the teaching that they had heard. The end result was that though they were less eloquent than the apostles, although I don't know, I don't know how eloquent Peter was, but although they were possibly less eloquent than the apostles, they were more effective. Why is that, he asks? Well, because they were far more numerous than the apostles first. And secondly, the personal testimony of a layman rings truer, he says, and feels more authentic than the polished preaching of a, of a professional preacher. Now, if you've read any of Whitfield's sermons, you may disagree with that, and I understand. But I'm just saying, in general, there's something that rings true from the testimony of someone who says, yeah, but I know that I know that I know. I, I know you heard that person say that, and he kinda, there's a bunch of people, so maybe it's not true. But I know. I know what Christ has done in me. And so it was a, a full new movement. This is what's so amazing about Christianity. 
is that at its core, it is not the job of the clergy to impart the truth to the world. That responsibility belongs to every believer. Let's say that one more time. Just in case you missed that. The mission of the church, the spreading of the gospel, the bearing witness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ does not belong to the apostles, leaders, and clergy. It belongs to everyone. Loved ones, it belongs to you. Do you believe that? To, to what degree do, do we believe that? That, that, that that's true, that, that it is your responsibility to, to call, to, to speak to, to... To carry the mantle for, for, for your brother or, or your aunt or your cousin, for your boss or, or your assistant or that dude in the cubicle over there. That it's your responsibility to, to talk about this Christ with the people that are, that are in, in the school with you or, or the moms that are on your neighborhood swim team. That, that, it's, that it's yours. That he's, that he's given it to you. I must preach the gospel from up here. But you must share the gospel everywhere you go. Now, I do too, so don't worry. We're on the same boat here. But we are a sent people. We gather to be sent, not just to gather again. And it would be doing violence to the book of Acts and to the movement of the gospel throughout the years to say that that's anything but the very mandate of Christ. So my job this morning, the job of the worship, the job of the liturgy is, is to remind you, to, to refresh you, to, to rekindle your spirit to, of the beauty and, and, the, and the wonder and the, and the unmatched, unparalleled delight we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. To, to paint the picture of, to, to show you the Savior who, who, who did all things for you on the cross. To declare that it is well with your soul because of him that the wondrous Messiah that we have and, and share, that, that he did indeed save a wretch like me and save a wretch like you. And that he's made a way through his death and, and through his resurrection, there's a way to have peace with God. Hopefully you heard that when we were, we were doing the confession and absolution. Like, loved ones, it is well. You have peace with God in Christ Jesus. I don't know what else is accusing you today, but nothing can accuse you if that's true. And so that's, that's our job is to, is to rekindle that, to refresh it. And your job is to, is to take that in, to allow your spirit to be rekindled by the Holy Spirit and then to take that life and to give it away because it's, it's effervescent, it's alive, it's alive in you. And I find it interesting, and so it, it seems like this is more of a principle than, than just the narrative, that the best time to share the gospel is when you don't have your stuff together. I think that's true in a couple of reasons. One, because a lot of time you don't have your act together, just to be honest. So if it had to be that, that wouldn't be the case, and at least that's true for me. And, and secondly is it's, 
real. I think oftentimes we find ourselves thinking that, that in order for us to declare the reality and beauty of Jesus, the, the power over uh, in our lives of, of how he's changing us, and that, that, all shall, that all has to be well, and that's just not the case. It's when things aren't, when we are weak and displaced and disoriented. You see, the, the world longs to see not, not some kind of solution that floats above difficulties and sorrows and, and pain, but no, that one that, that meets us amidst those. That's what the world's longing for, not something that's like, oh, we just you know, disappear from, from the reality of what no one gets to escape. Instead, no, something that, that carries us through amidst it. Of course, you have to know that. That has to be true in you and, and, and for you. And so, so when life is difficult and when you are struggling and, and when you feel weak, well, Paul would say that's then, then you are strong. There's less pretense. There's less pretending. You'll be, at your, you'll be your best ambassador because of your weakness in your fears and as you struggle because that's when the real power of Jesus is manifested in you. And so, do not hate your weakness and your struggle and your mourning, but see it as the very invitation as these folks in Acts who are being scattered out and are just talking about the Jesus that has them scattered out. What would it look like to look and talk to a friend to declare that it's been a tough week or a tough month, maybe just a whole tough year. As you take it along, let's look at, at all that's been afoot for you that you are really tempted to despair, really tempted to punch out or to drink your way to sleep every night, that your only hope is the sustaining grace of God that keeps you afloat, which is one of the reasons why you have find yourself having to go back to church because this is a place where we remind you like it is well, like he has you. He's going to carry you through. He's up to something. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. It's one of the reasons why we choose to be in community where people could say, I'm for you. I'm going to pick you up. You're down. I'm going to pick you up and help you. I will hope for you when you can't hope for yourself. That's why, that's why you have to be in community. That's why we choose to, even, to serve even when we have very little to offer at times because, because we can, for a moment, get our eyes off of our immediate circumstances, which can just choke us and realize that maybe God is working over here, and maybe that means that he's working in me, and maybe he's even going to use me and my weakness to have effect over here, and it makes no sense other than this is how God works. And so... And so I must be a part of that. And then to be able to look at someone and say, how do you make it through? How do you, how do you navigate difficult burying seasons? How do you make it through loss and mourning? Because this is the only way I know. And if it wasn't this way, I don't know that I would make it through. How do you make it through? Tell me, because I, I would love to hear. I love seeing uh, Lisa Harding's post this uh, week, I guess it was this week, on like the four ways to use social media as a, as a conduit for expressing the gospel and just the creativity of it, but, but also the sense of 
Yeah, this is this is true about me. I don't know about you. I, I, if you didn't read the article, uh, just a couple. Of, it was a couple of different ideas about things you could post on Facebook or ways ways you could communicate. And, and immediately, I had the you know the natural reservation of like, I just don't want to be one of those people. Now, if you don't know who those people are, it's you might be those people, and that's okay. <laughs> You're going to read the post and be like, I do this. I don't understand. This is not. But, but that, that for many of us, that same thing that I said about not wanting to be those people, that's the thing that keeps us from talking to the people that need to hear from us. It's the same thing. It's technically just a, it's a, it's a form of arrogance. It's a, it's a form of being too cool to talk about Jesus with people that need him. And we need to repent of that. If that's, if that's what's in our soul, then... Like, it's good to look like a fool because of Jesus. You're in good company in that moment. That's the company that, that I would like to continue to keep. And I don't like looking like a fool, ever. Most of you don't either. And yeah, that's some of what he invites us into. So what, what does all this sharing and... And, and, and miracles, what do all these create? Well, verse 8, what is the result? So there was much joy in that city. Great trials leading to great joy because these people who've been displaced and have lost family and, and have lost community and probably possessions, well, they're left with Jesus and so they're talking about him. And, and to this other group of people, that breeds great joy. Great joy to them. I, I find, I've been thinking about this a lot and talking to, to some of you guys. I think that not sharing the gospel is the thing that we feel the most guilty about that we do the least about. And, and maybe you don't, maybe again, this is not true for everyone, okay, just... Well, everyone I talk to, so, um, so just don't talk to me. That way it's good, you know. Um, but it, it's, it's the thing that, that, that we feel the most guilty about, but that we just, you know, next is probably prayer, and then next is probably generosity. It's probably that order, you know. So like a sermon on evangelism, it's like, no, but that's okay. I'll be fine by the end, you know. Prayer, you'll feel a little bit, you know. Uh, but, um, but we just... And a couple of reasons hit me. I've been trying to do an honest inventory of my own soul because this is an area of massive need of growth and change in my own life. And so I'm trying to take an inventory. What are, what are the reasons? And here are the two primary reasons. I'm sure there are more. Um, I think we don't, we don't, we don't share and we don't offer, take that risk, and then, and then we don't don't feel guilty. I think because we don't think it's going to work. I don't think that we really believe. That, that we're going to open our mouths and that the Spirit of God is going to use it to draw someone to Jesus. I, I don't think we think it's going to happen. I, I think we really are, like Jesus said, like, oh, you have little faith. We, we, don't, we don't believe it's going to happen. And that's either because we've never seen it happen or because we just don't think it will happen with us. And so, well, if it's not going to happen, then reason number two becomes the clincher, and that is that we find ourselves focusing far more on what it's going to cost us 
on how it's going to affect us relationally and what it's going to cost us in reputation or, or just how foolish we're going to look. And so, so we're focused on the cost, and we don't think it's going to work. And no wonder we don't tell anybody about anything. Because if it's not going to work, and I'm going to look like an idiot, or I'm going to fail, then let's just not. Next sermon, please. Right? It's okay. It, it'll pass. This too shall pass. So we have little faith, and I think we have great fear. And so I've been trying to think, okay, what is, what is the gospel antidote? You know, if that's true, that's true, you know, pandemically amongst us, what is the gospel antidote? How, do, how, does, how does the truth of the gospel galvanize and awaken our hearts? And um, I just started wondering, what, would, what if we were convinced otherwise? What if we were convinced that God means to make somebody happen, somebody happy, that God means to make somebody happy, joyful through your witness, that he, that he intends to, that we might be the occasion for someone else's joy. Instead of the why it won't work and what it's going to cost us, what, what if... What if we find ourselves choosing to speak, believing that God's going to provide a listener and that it will result in gladness, knowing that some won't want to hear, and that's true, but some will, some will. What if we believe we got to be a part of that joy, part of that, and there was great joy in the city? Like what? What if that was the vision we had? And therefore, we ask God candidly and openly, Lord, I'd like to be a part of that joy. And the other things are real too. And I want to, I want to believe you. What if, our, what, if our, what if our prayers were actually filled with the antidote of the gospel, which says, I, I'm supposed to be drawn into the joy of God, to the, to the delight of what he's doing in the world. And, and so I'm, I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to ask, not, not that I would, okay, Lord, give me courage, which is great and all, but Lord, give me vision. I, I've prayed for courage a bunch, and I feel like I don't know that courage is the, is the antidote, because courage feels like a mustering up of. It feels I don't know how to not translate it into duty, like be courageous and do your duty. Instead, it's like no, Lord, I need I need a I need a vision. I need to be able to see. I need to be able to see that there is a joy that you're inviting me into, and it's with that person, or it's in that conversation, and that. Not only will it be a joy as I participate in it for my own soul, but it'll be a joy for all of us as we rejoice with those who rejoice, just as we mourned with those who mourned. That there would be joy amongst us, that there would be joy in our, our city. As I, as I was praying through this sermon, I thought, I'm having a hard time believing that this can be possible amongst us. I, I mean, I, I'm like, Lord, give me faith that I would believe that this can happen, that, that God could swell something in us that is not natural to us. We, you know, I, right next to Woodstock First Baptist, and, you know, they have the now go tell everybody sign as you drive by there. I cut through their parking lot. You're not supposed to. But, um, but there's a little sign there. And every time I drive by there, I'm like, I don't think that works. <laughs> no joke. That's, that's you know. And, uh, and I think I, I long for us to be a church that is and. That is, that is, the gospel is alive to change you and to make you free, and he's done so that you may be alive and give yourself away in mission and in word. There's deeds and all kinds of beautiful and powerful things in here, but 
And I don't know what to say. We can't escape it, right? I mean, it's just the next chapter. So here we are talking about how you should be sharing the gospel again. It's unavoidable. I think we're so uncomfortable sharing our faith. We often forget that it's good news. It's actually good news. We're not a nuisance. It's good news. We get to be agents of joy. We need to see someone greater. It's the whole thing about Simon I was going to talk about. I got all excited about evangelism and now we're out of time. So. crazy thing about Simon is he wanted to be great still. He wanted to still be great. And what Simon needed above all things, whether he's a Christian or not, is not worth the debate at this point. The things we see in Simon are the things we see in our own flesh. So whether he was a Christian or not, it doesn't matter. We're there. But he was trying to buy something from God to make his life work. He was trying to transact with God in order to have effect, to be powerful, to matter. The thing I see about Simon more than anything is that Simon was about Simon. And um, whether it's in us sharing the gospel, living holy lives, giving ourselves away in mission, being a husband, a father, a good employee, good citizen. That if I'm transacting and finding myself looking at God going like, well, you understand, I, 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 I give, I, I've even studied my Bible some, I've, I come to church on a rel relatively regular basis, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm good, I, I, I'm trying my best, how come things aren't working better for me? That, that's what most of us do. We don't, we don't pull out cash and say, I'd like some Holy Spirit, please. No, that, that's what Simon does, and that's obviously not the way to go. Read Peter's response. But we do the same thing. Try and transact with God to get, us, get him to do what we want him to do for us. And the thing that Simon missed is, and this is the thing that's significant for us as we think about what it means to talk to other people, is that he missed that it's a gift. You notice that Peter in the passage doesn't say, um, Simon, you thought you, could, you thought you could purchase the power of God with, with silver? No, he doesn't say the power of God, even though it's power that he's after. He says, you, you're trying to purchase the gift of God. And you, can't, you can't buy a gift. You can't purchase one. Grace is not something that you can acquire. It's not something that you can trade for. It's not something that you can leverage against. It can only be received. And Simon didn't see that. And, and, and I think that's some of what we don't see when we're looking at sharing the good news of Jesus. And so as we, um, as we come to the table, 
we have to see um, something really beautiful that's, that's a pattern in the gospel. And that is that until the people in Jerusalem were scattered, which was, as we said, really traumatic, really painful, really challenging, but until they were scattered, there was no opportunity for joy in Samaria. The life of Christ wasn't showing up there. It took them being torn from their comforts and the comfort of their life so that a new place could experience the life of Christ. And this is the kind of scattering that follows the pattern of the gospel. It's one of the things that we remember at the table, and that is that Jesus had to be scattered. He had to be torn in, into pieces, that, that the life and the joy of, of Christ would be able to go out. As we said before, someone had to die, and he did. He endured the cross, and if you remember in Hebrews, he endures the cross for the joy, right? For the joy set before him. He could see the great joy in the city, see? He, he could see it. And so when we take this, we're at, we take this, these elements, we're asking the, the spirit of, of Christ to help us see not only what he's accomplished for us, which is the very thing you actually have to get away. Like, I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know a ton about theology, but I know Jesus has made a major difference in my life. That's, that's what I know. So you want to talk about him? Um, I, I heard a Matt Chandler pastor in Texas say that uh, he was, a, I think, a high schooler um, in, on a football team. And his football teammate came up to him and said, um, hey, uh, I need to talk to you about Jesus. So do you want to talk about it now or do you want to talk about it later? <laughs> No joke. That's how he came to Christ. I don't know that's the best way, but it's a way. But, but he, he, he had the life of Christ. He, he had something he wanted to share, and that's, that's what we get to be reminded of, reminded of here. And he endured the cross for the joy, that you are the joy, and that you get to then be the joy. It's the gospel. It's how it works. We get scattered. We give our resources. We look like fools, and joy comes. So, let me pray. Father, um, would you, um, by your great mercy, would you take these words and would you, um, through your spirit, give us joy and vision and an anticipation that you are and will be and can be and long to be at work in the people that are in our world, in our spheres, in our relationships, in our work. Lord, I, I, I long for us to be able to, to tell Acts stories together to one another. Not because we get to tell stories, but because there will be much joy at declaring who you are and how you work. So would you... Would you give us that privilege? Would you, um, would you transform us in these arenas in ways that we cannot transform ourselves? Would you, would you make the, um, the, the gospel so palpable, the, the, the magnitude of your, of your work for us so real that it would, it would strip away all the other things that, that we would be like those who are traveling that have nothing left but you? And so, well... We'll give you away. Could you make that true of us even amidst all the things that are okay and comfortable and maybe easy for us right now? We don't long for persecution, Lord. It's naive. 
but we ask for the fervor, the, the seed of the church, that it would be true in us. Please, glorify yourself through your people. And now as we receive this meal, Lord, would you just infuse our hearts with the love of Christ? Would we receive both the body and the blood as the like screaming reminder of your love and grace for us and that that would be enough for all that ails us, for all that consumes us, for all our loss and all our hope. We pray in Christ. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, this is your meal. It's the best meal. So come forward, receive the body and the blood of Christ for you.